Welcome to This Is Not About Your Body, where we talk about all the real shit body image issues are actually about, because they're never just about the way you look. I am your host, Jesse Neeland, and today I'm doing a solo episode to talk about something that's been coming up in my coaching work with clients lately around internalized oppression, patriarchy, and self-objectification. So uh, just to start, I want to tell you that I love watching cult documentaries. This is just something I find so fascinating, the psychology of both the cult leaders and also of the people who find themselves drawn into cults. Like, it's just fascinating to me. Um, And the psychology of coercive control is really basically like cult psychology. Um, But today I want to talk about how some of my thoughts have evolved both through learning about coercive control and cult psychology as well as really looking at some of the issues that are coming up for my clients around body image and wanting to be attractive and also a lot of the um, patterns of behavior around like not feeling like they are totally free to do things because they are afraid of judgment or negative consequences um, and how this is all sort of created as almost like a coercive control society-wide pattern. Um, And yeah, so just to give you a little definition, coercive control is defined as an act or a pattern of uh, assaults, threats, humiliation, or intimidation or other abuse that is used to harm, punish, or frighten the victim. So that's a pretty good place to start to understand the concept. Um, But I think that when we talk about coercive control, we're usually talking about like the most extreme or violent versions of this pattern. For example, in like an abusive cult situation or in an abusive relationship like domestic violence or, you know, uh, emotional abuse, gaslighting, um, that kind of pattern. That's usually where we're talking about it because that's most often where it's visible and notable and people are going to talk about it. Um, But I want to talk about it in how it shows up in the more subtle ways. The more day-to-day ways, the more invisible ways in most of our lives, to be perfectly honest. Um, So just to give you a little bit of background, because I think it's important to understand some of the um, theory and psychology of coercive control, like how it works, why it's effective, (laughs) uh, what makes you vulnerable to it or resilient against it. Um, And to start with that, I will use cults as an example and abusive relationships, I think. Um, Because it's so easy to sit on the outside and learn about people who got drawn into a cult or to, you know, know somebody in your life or hear a story in the news about somebody who was in an abusive relationship and judge them. You know, it's very easy to wonder why they would be so stupid and feel very confident that like, oh, I would, that would never happen to me. I would never let that happen because I'm not that stupid. Uh, (laughs) or to view it as like a weakness, you know, like to think of it as why didn't they have the strength of character or whatever to like just leave or stay autonomous and not get drawn into being controlled or exploited in these ways. Um, And the reason that we do that, it's, it's extremely comforting to hear these extreme stories. It's very comforting to distance ourselves from the people in the stories and to imagine that we would never end up in that kind of situation. However, that distance is an illusion. And even though it's a very comforting illusion, I think it's important that we name it for what it is, which is an illusion. Because uh, actually, we are all vulnerable to the same 
tactics of coercive control. And many of us are really living inside of a system of coercive control in which we are much more like the people who got drawn into a cult or, you know, were found themselves in an abusive relationship or whatever than we would like to think. So as we talk about this, I just want to like name that it's uncomfortable. It, this is a very uncomfortable conversation. Um, I'm going to explain why coercive control works and why it's so effective. And as you listen, I would not be surprised at all if thoughts would come up for you that are like, oh, thank God I'm not like those kind of people or, you know, that could never happen to me. And I just want to challenge that, encourage you to notice them if those thoughts come up um, and try not to distance yourself from these ideas or separate yourself from these uh, scenarios just because it's uncomfortable. Instead, I encourage you to get curious about any of the ways in which you have or do or could participate in such a dynamic and allow yourself to really connect to it, not as an outsider who's curious about like why people would be so dumb or weak, um, but as an insider who's also participating in this on a wider scale and or under the right circumstances could totally find themselves in the same scenario. So I'm going to start by talking about a few of the elements that coercive control relies on in order to be effective. And in order to do that, I have to tell you a little bit about attachment theory. Um, so just some super basics. Attachment theory is basically um, a theory in psychology in which basically we understand that children form attachment relationships with their caretakers and how those attachment relationships go in childhood, basically, um, it is. It informs their later uh, patterns in attachment relationships. So we all have attachment relationships. Those are the people that we're usually really close to, that we go to for comfort, care, support, love, um, you know, to get our needs for intimacy met. Those are our attachment relationships. And we all have them. And we all need them. <laughs> There's no avoiding that. Um, but the kind of attachment relationship dynamic you had in childhood is definitely going to inform what feels normal for you in adulthood, what feels comfortable, familiar, what feels um, safe, what feels good, how you show up in those spaces. So attachment theory is basically just exploring the fact that our childhood attachment has an impact on our adult attachment and there's so much interesting stuff in this concept um i could talk about this forever but basically all you really need to know is that we all need to get our attachment needs met in order to thrive so obviously as a child you need them met because uh you are useless when you're born and therefore you have to have someone who's attached to you taking care of you or you will not survive so attachment is our very first survival strategy but even as we go on into adulthood and we don't need anybody to take care of us in order to survive, we still do need to get our needs for intimacy, connection, feeling seen, feeling like we belong. Like those are emotional needs that if they go unmet, we our mental health falls apart. We just cannot thrive without getting our attachment needs met. It is one of the driving forces of our human biology is to get our attachment needs met. And it's important that you understand this because there's a few different types of what's called insecure attachment styles. So secure attachment would be like everything went magically perfectly well in childhood and in adulthood you are super secure in your attachments. You get your needs met. Um, it feels, if not easy, it feels very like accessible for you to feel safe with people who you love and who love you. Um, you know, it, 
it's unusual to be perfectly honest, but it, that would that would be great. You can also obviously heal from insecure childhood attachment wounding uh, and find secure attachment later on in life. But more often, interruptions to what would be ideal in terms of childhood attachment leads us to what's called an insecure attachment style in adulthood. And there's three different kinds of insecure attachment styles, which is to say three different sort of patterns or containers for like how your attachment wounding in childhood can show up in adult relationships in a way that just feels bad or is destructive or causes problems or keeps you from feeling how you want. Um, so the first one is anxious attachment, which is like just very briefly somebody who feels uh, like terrified of abandonment, terrified of rejection, um, is constantly on the lookout, like is this about to blow up, do they still love me, um, constantly seeking reassurance, like that would be somebody who has an insecure attachment style that is an anxious attachment style. Um, avoidant is sort of the opposite, it's like the vulnerability of needing someone to meet your needs so badly. If you learned that it wasn't safe or available to get them met in childhood, in adulthood, it might not feel safe to even have those needs. So instead of seeking the reassurance and trying to get the closeness, like an anxious style person might, um, you may find yourself pushing people away. You know, if we, we talk about sort of classic intimacy issues, like afraid of intimacy or afraid to let anybody get too close, afraid to rely on somebody, pushing people away or looking for excuses why things won't work, we may be looking at an avoidant pattern. And then there is disorganized, which is uh, basically some combination of those two in a particular dynamic, usually where the person in childhood was um, essentially the person who was meeting your connection needs, your attachment needs, was also the person who was making you feel unsafe. So that can be something as extreme as like, abuse if you grew up in a house that had abuse in it then you may end up with a disorganized attachment style because you both crave connection and attachment with someone who is also hurting you but it can also be a lot less extreme than that and it can just be like let's say your you know caretakers were very busy and stressed and unavailable to meet your needs um, and ended up making you feel rejected or hurt or unseen or whatever it may end up being kind of that same thing. So there's like a push-pull for the person in the disorganized space because the same person who meets their connection needs also either makes them feel like those needs are unsafe or hurts them. So it's actually a lot more complicated than that, but those are the three that I think are the most valuable to talk about here. So uh, basically, it is important that we acknowledge that everyone has attachment needs and everyone has their own attachment styles. And it can be flexible. Not every, These are not containers that are like super rigid. A lot of people will find themselves in one place in relationship with someone who shows up one way and in another place with someone who shows up another way. So like everybody is equally vulnerable in a lot of ways. Um, or rather I should say everybody who has an insecure attachment style in adulthood or attachment wounding from childhood is equally vulnerable to what coercive what the coercive control pattern looks like and that is because the coercive controlling person the cult leader the abuser whatever this person is they go about meeting your attachment needs in the beginning in a really luscious and abundant way so it will feel really good at first and this is something I think we often miss when we talk about like abusive relationships. We're like, why would why would anybody end up with someone who treats them like trash, you know? 
Um, and the answer is they didn't always or <laughs> we wouldn't. So in the beginning, this person provides a ton of attachment needs for a person who may either have never had that before or just was really seeking that, really craving that, really drawn to that. Um, and so at first it feels amazing. You're like, oh my God, I feel so seen. See, I feel so respected and valued and loved. Um, there's a, a word for this in uh, like abusive patterns, especially things like narcissistic abusive patterns in relationships called love bombing, which is basically like, you know, in sort of a traditional heteronormative way, obviously gender can look a lot of different ways in this, but um, very often it's like a guy woos a woman with like really intense love and romance in the beginning. So she just feels like overwhelmed with his love and desire and feels so satiated and safe and and like connected. It's such a lovely feeling. But actually, even though that makes sense that that would feel good, it's often a red flag that someone is like, sort of obsessing over you uh, or pouring all of their time into you in this way, pouring all their energy into you, often a little bit faster than maybe feels appropriate because uh, a lot of times it's part of this pattern in which they then use that against you down the line. So meeting your attachment needs at first in a really abundant, luscious way is the first move of a cult leader or an abuser, and that is how you end up in relationship with them. If they showed up and were an asshole on day one, you would not join the cult and you would not date that person. It would be very simple. Um, but they they show up usually in like, they, they tend to be very charming. Most cult leaders, most uh, narcissistic abusers, they all tend to be very charming. <laughs> and part of their charm is that they can make you feel so loved. They can make you feel like your abundant... Uh, like your needs are being met, your attachment needs are being met in this like deeply abundant way that a lot of us really crave because we didn't get what we needed at some point in our lives. So it's very appealing. Then comes the next stage. So at this point, they've kind of got you involved with them. Next, they they do a couple of things. And uh, one of them is to isolate you from other attachment relationships or support. So that can be isolating you from your friends, your family, um, your communities, uh, acquaintance relationships at work. And of course, this can look a lot of different ways. In a cult, it can be literally like, you know, if you think, I don't know, Scientology or whatever, and a lot of religious cults too, they'll be like, you are not allowed to hang out with anybody outside of this cult. Like that is no longer allowed. At a certain point, you have to give up on those relationships. Um, and they sort of poison your mind against these people. So it's not like necessarily people are thinking oh you know what would be really nice for me is if I quit all of my other <laughs> supportive relationships and just focus on this one it's more like they slowly over time turn you against those people or make you um, feel suspicious of those people's motives or make you think of them as bad people or inferior or sort of position them as people who are holding back from personal growth or whatever. So there's a lot of ways this can look. In a relationship uh, dynamic that's like romantic, it's often jealousy or like really strong opinions. So it might be like, oh, your friend is just jealous of you. She talks about you behind your back. You shouldn't be friends with her anymore. Or like, I don't want you hanging out with that friend of yours anymore because he just wants to sleep with you and I need you all to myself. 
So this can look a bunch of other ways. But isolating you from your other attachment relationships is key to coercive control because then <laughs> you are super reliant on them to meet your attachment needs, which makes you very easy to manipulate and control and exploit and all the things. Another one is to slowly and progressively push your boundaries for what feels normal or acceptable, what kind of treatment you would tolerate. Um, this one can look different in cults because like a progression of incredibly weird sounding stuff. We don't usually hear about like steps one through 40. You know, we hear about like steps 90 through 100 where they're having like an animal sacrifice ritual and doing all this crazy stuff that we're like, oh my God, I would never get drawn into that. But it happens really slowly and progressively. At the same time that they are gaslighting you and making you doubt your own reality so that they can kind of create a reality that serves their own goals and purposes, um, essentially making you take on their perspective in part because you've given up your other relationships of people who might be like, you know what, that sounds weird. Don't do that. Um, and kind of give you that space to process like, yeah, it felt weird actually. I, I didn't like that or that didn't feel like um, – something I want to be a part of but when you've moved away from those people who can offer you perspective outside of a group like a religious high control group or a cult or even just a relationship when you're isolated you're a lot more vulnerable to things feeling normal progressively and slowly also it's kind of like the thing of well okay so if he hits you once and then apologizes uh, but, or like slaps you, right? Something that's like not full on domestic violence. Oh my God, this is like super bad. Then once that's happened, it actually seems weird to get upset the next time something happens and it's a little worse. Or like if he shoves you the first time and you're like, whoa, that was weird. It doesn't seem that weird by the time he hits you. If he hits you, it doesn't seem that weird by the time he like, I don't know, chokes you or whatever. Um, so there is this progression of what's normal and what you'll tolerate and they're constantly slowly and tactically pushing your boundaries to get you basically to a place where whatever it is that they want to be doing um, seems normal and acceptable or that you doubt your own reality enough that you question yourself like either why did I make that happen or like um, you know even just what's wrong with me that I tolerated it up until now but then suddenly now it would be crossing a line like it, it makes you doubt yourself right that's gaslighting it makes you doubt your reality and a, a major component to doing this pushing your boundaries and sort of replacing your reality with the one that suits them is a strong focus on individual choice and accountability and responsibility so <laughs> In a lot of ways, people who are in these relationships, they don't exactly, they might feel oppressed on some level, right? They might feel controlled. At a certain point, it may be more likely that they feel that way um, in terms of intensity. But for a while, there is just this sense of like, I have agency and power and control because there's a major focus on me being responsible for my own life. Like, uh, if you think about, I don't know if you saw the Nexium cult or something like that. It's like a self-development cult and it basically focused on like you're responsible for all of your own feelings and reactions. Therefore, if you're like upset that someone crossed your boundary, that's a you problem and you actually need to look inward and heal and figure out why that bothered you so much instead of holding the other person accountable, right? Um, similar with Scientology, similar with a lot of cults. It's it's basically like the one of the founding principles is personal uh, accountability or responsibility, 
which allows you to then doubt yourself down the line. It allows gaslighting to proliferate. It allows you to basically um, think to yourself, what did I do to make this happen when something external happens? Instead of being like, hey, why did you do that? You're like, hey, why? Like either why did I make that happen or why does that bother me so much? What do I need to heal? And obviously personal accountability and development and responsibility, they, those are great things in a lot of ways, right? So again, during that love bombing phase where someone's just meeting your needs and making you feel amazing and valued, um, if that kind of language and concept is introduced, it's very easy to use against you down the line where now it's actually not so much about the healthy personal accountability of like, you know, uh, learning and growing and healing. Um, and now it's actually about blaming yourself for everything that happens to you. So these are all things that happen together um and part of the making you kind of doubt your reality and blame yourself and uh basically having your boundaries pushed for what feels normal and acceptable is often slowly progressively introducing rules that you have to follow in order to like earn the person or the group's love and approval and sense of safe and secure attachment and belonging etc so this in a cult would be things that you're getting from the group as well as from the cult leader uh in a relationship it would just be with that other person in an organization it could be a combo right it could be like the whole organization and the leader but basically what they do is they use your attachment needs against you at this point so they cultivate a pattern of disorganized attachment which is to say they become the person who is both hurting you, violating you, or controlling you, abusing you, and the person that you turn to for comfort and support and care after being hurt or violated or abused. That is the key to coercive control. When they have isolated you from other sources of attachment needs being met, and you can recognize we all have these attachment needs, they are fundamental to our drive in the world and our ability to survive it makes sense that they would be able to use that against you and that's how it happens it takes time and work frankly being a person being a cult leader or an abuser honestly sometimes I think about like god it's just so much freaking work think about all the shit they could have done to put all that time and energy towards other things anyway so there is like a randomness thing that happens if you think about like the addictive um, sort of sway that gambling has over people. Part of what is so addictive about it is the like intermittent reward of dopamine, you know, like you're you're winning sometimes, but not others. But if you never won, you wouldn't get addicted to gambling. You would be like, this sucks. I'm going home. There would be no reason to get into that addiction, right? And the same is true here with coercive control. If they were only a dick to you and an abuser, you would be a lot more likely, even if it started well, to just be like this, there is no point to me being here. I hate this and I want to leave. You would get there a lot faster at the very least. But there is this intermittent reward thing that happens where maybe they are awful to you at times or they make you feel awful. But they're also there to pick you up when someone makes you feel awful, even if that someone was them. So they strategically use your attachment needs against you because they become your primary attachment figure, which allows them to incentivize you to follow their rules in order to earn that good part 
to earn your reward of like getting your attachment needs met, making you feel valued and special and good and loved and like you belong and safe and all this stuff. So it's intermittent. It goes back and forth. And uh, it's important to note, by the way, that like, like I said, attachment is our fundamental strategy. We are born useless. We cannot take care of ourselves. We do not have agency or power or autonomy as babies. We need people to take care of us. So this attachment drive is our primary survival strategy. So even though we have other drives, important ones for thriving, such as freedom, agency, authenticity, all these things, um, those things will often take a back seat to our attachment needs first. So a lot of times people will be like, I don't know why I did any of these things. And I'm like, well, I do. It's because that thing felt like it would meet your attachment needs or not doing that thing felt like it would threaten your attachment ability to get your attachment needs met. And that is your primary driver. Even if you're not walking through the world thinking my number one priority and value is to get my attachment needs met, kind of is. And that's just the way things are. But if you're not aware of that, you can look at yourself and be like, what is wrong with my character that I keep ending up in these situations? A lot of times the answer is because that seemed like a strategy to get your attachment needs met. And your brain, who is much more interested in you surviving than being happy, um, <laughs> your brain is just never going to let you pick the other one. If it feels like you would be abandoned and alone and die to your brain, it's not going to let you pick the strategy that that would happen, even if it felt you know, like it aligned with your more conscious goals and beliefs. So this is how it happens. Obviously, we've talked a little bit about how this looks in cults and abusive or controlling relationships, but it also shows up in, like I said, society-wide. Like this shows up in white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism. It shows up kind of everywhere. And especially with capitalism, I would say, um, there is this obviously like rugged individualism in the U.S. is of value. It's like the big value. Everyone should be able to pull themselves up by the, their bootstraps and, and, you know, make themselves successful no matter what the circumstances are. Like those are the people that we put on pedestals and celebrate. And we look down on anyone who, you know, lets, lets their circumstances get to them as if that's a real thing. But anyway, we ignore the role that the social context plays in a person's life and act as if everyone should be able to be equally successful no matter what obstacles they have to overcome. The reason for that is because we have this value on like personal accountability and responsibility, which makes us so much easier to manipulate, exploit, control, <laughs> oppress, <laughs> etc. So in terms of capitalistic society, it says you need to be productive, industrious, hardworking, and successful. Also, you have to prove your worth and value by like buying and consuming. These are all the things you have to be following all of our rules. And you're like, well, I want my attachment needs met. So I guess I'll follow the rules. I'll try to be all of those things and, you know, like uh, reject any part of myself that doesn't align with those things or feel bad about any part of myself that doesn't align with those things. So this this intense and sometimes violent pattern is writ large on society. We basically learn a set of rules about how we have to be to get our attachment needs met in society. So we learn that, for example, like men need to be a particular way in order to be valued by society. Generally, that way is like tall, <laughs> Rich, successful, dominant, sort of conventionally masculine, uh, lean, 
uh, whatever. We have rules that are gendered for how each person will succeed at uh, basically fitting into society, being valued by society. So what we learn from that is that our value must be earned by following the rules that we've been given by what is essentially a coercive control type of system. Now, granted, it's not like we actually have an attachment relationship, like society in general doesn't specifically, well, actually maybe it does abuse us, but it doesn't specifically like offer us comfort and care. But there is a very similar pattern that plays out here that we want to feel accepted and valued, respected. We want access to opportunities and privileges. We want to feel like we belong and people like us and know us. We want to be connected. We want our attachment needs met. And we have a sense that there is a certain way we have to show up in society to make that happen. And there is another way we could show up in society that would threaten that and leave us all alone. This is the primary force at play in most people's body image issues, shame stories, lack of self-worth, etc. So just to talk a little bit about the gendered stuff in patriarchy and how that has to do with body image issues and self-worth, um, we, and by we here, I'm just going to say like AFAB people, meaning assigned female at birth, AFAB, or women or girls or people conditioned as women or girls or some femmes. So like basically we learn that in order to get our attachment needs met, aka in order to be like worthy of love and belonging and connection and acceptance and blah, 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 we have to follow the rules we're given for what makes us good and worthy and acceptable. And those rules, which are gendered for us, is basically all about making life more pleasant, more comfortable, and more convenient for other people. And specifically men, but other people in general, right? So we are given value. We are valued for our ability to be nurturing, to do emotional and domestic labor and be caretakers, to um, be sexually available, you know, when someone is interested in us, rejecting them just outright, being like, I'm not into you, feels terrifying because we learn that part of our value comes from being sexually available to other people's whims. Again, often mostly men. Um, we learn that our value comes from being attractive, being in alignment or conforming to beauty or body ideals, which again come through this sort of male gaze. It's not exactly what individual men find attractive, but there is an overarching sense that we have to make men happy, make men comfortable, and make men feel good, basically. And that includes being attractive to look at, being desirable, um, protecting their egos, not asking for anything, you know. So the rules we learn to follow is how our self-concept develops. We become what we think we need to be in order to get our attachment needs met in the wider world of society, which in a lot of ways comes down to uh, pleasing, caretaking, making men comfortable. So these rules that we follow, they strip us of our full humanity. That's, I mean, we call it self-objectification or the objectification of women. Basically anything that is uh, dehumanizing or strips a person of their full humanity is just objectification, right? You could objectify a person for something other than being hot. Like I think um, 
a lot of men feel objectified financially, for example. They feel like people value them as providers financially, and they don't feel like they're being valued as whole humans. So a lot of us end up feeling objectified in a variety of ways, including as sexual objects, which is to say we have to be beautiful and attractive and desirable and turn men on and, and be sexually available and like, uh, you know, meet their standards and gratify them sexually, whatever. Or as a resource to exploit in terms of emotional and domestic care. So that would be like centering a man's needs or centering anybody else's needs, um, putting our role as parent before our role as human, putting our role as, you know, relationship to men being sort of central, like I'm a wife first <laughs> as opposed to I'm a person first and I'm married, right? Like that's how we learn to identify ourselves. Even if you're not actively doing that, that is like the general messaging that we are valued most and we have to follow the rules that uphold either or sex being a great sexual object, being attractive and desirable, or providing emotional care, domestic care, child care, that kind of labor. And if we don't do these things, if we fail these two ideals, these objectifying ideals for what makes us quote unquote worthy under patriarchy, um, that we will be denied access to getting all of our attachment needs met we will not fit in we will not be respected we will not belong we will, nobody will love us or choose us we won't be able to get our needs for intimacy met and this is like true for everybody and of all genders and sexualities but it is especially potent for women and femmes and afab folks who are in relationship either sexually attracted to or romantically attracted to men because that's where it feels the most like urgent, basically, that you meet these standards. Because at that point, it's not just society that you're trying to please, sort of more broadly. It's also like the literal relationships in your life, your literal ability to get the sex intimacy, you know, uh, commitment and closeness with a person that you crave out of like the romantic or sexual space. They rely on your ability to make men happy. So you follow the rules and you beat yourself up for any ways in which you fail the rules. Which, by the way, just being a whole three-dimensional person, you've already failed. So it's no wonder you feel bad about yourself, feel like too much or not enough. Like, of course you do. The ideal is not a whole three-dimensional person. So just by existing, you've failed the standard under patriarchy. So anyway, basically what happens is we adopt these beliefs and these rules because we grow up with them and they feel true. And we all have like a plethora of experiences that make them feel like proof like this is really how it is we really do have to follow these rules this really is the only way for me to get my attachment needs met um and so we adopt those views and we internalize them and this is internalized oppression and this can be true in any system of oppression so for example under patriarchy a lot of women learn that their value comes from being attractive and or a caretaker and then beat themselves up when they either feel like they're failing at those two things or for the ways in which they don't align it, align with it or whatever. Um, or they'll take all their value from those things <laughs> in an unhealthy and imbalanced way where then they're like terrified of losing it. So that would be internalized patriarchy, internalized oppression. Basically, it, it's kind of like we agree with our oppressors. They say like, hey, you're not a real three-dimensional human. You don't get to do that. And if you want to make me happy and get your attachment needs met, you have to follow these rules. And you're like, yeah, you're right. I'm not. 
I totally agree. I agree to follow these rules because you're right. I'm not worthy of those things innately. So internalized oppression, most of us have done this around something, but then the more oppressed identities you have, like if you're a woman and a person of color and you're queer and you're disabled, like, and you're living in a fat body, there's going to be more and more internalized oppression to deal with. And it becomes more and more likely that you've taken on a lot of messages from your oppressors. Um, a great example from my coaching practice around this would be a lot of folks in bigger bodies essentially have agreed with the societal beliefs and system that says you're worthless or you're lazy or you're like just a bad person. So they believe, they've internalized the beliefs that those things are true about them. It's like society said, hey, if you're fat, you're bad. And they're like, yep, I agree. I will do everything in my power to show you that I know that. I will feel horrible about myself. I will spend my whole life pursuing weight loss. I, I agree with you. And the reason for this, even though that sucks and it's so uncomfortable and painful to be in that position where you've basically like agreed with someone who thinks you're inferior, it actually is a pretty decent strategy if you think about it. Like, not, not decent maybe, but a reasonable strategy for getting your attachment needs met because the, the overarching system and or the people in your actual life have basically said, that's not going to fly here. If you want your attachment needs met, you have to agree with me and these are the rules. So it's understandable. You'd be like, okay, then you're right and I'm a piece of shit and I will work on that and I will prove to you constantly that I'm trying to work on it and I will feel terrible about all the ways that I fail. Because at least then you'll know I'm on your side, right? Like it's a little bit of sort of like sucking up to your oppressor. Like I agree. I am a piece of shit. Will you love me now? You know, and it's very, very understandable. And obviously none of this is happening consciously. For the most part, internalized oppression is just a thing that happens. It is not something we like decide to do. However, it does make us especially vulnerable because at that point we are trying to follow the rules of the cult, as it were. It just happens to be culture, right? Uh, we're trying to follow the rules of our oppressor to make them happy enough to treat us like whole people, which is never going to happen because if it was, they would have just done it, right? Like in a system of oppression, you, you don't ever get to win. You're never like, <laughs> you never get to suck up so much that your oppressor is like, wow, you are so obedient, malleable and exploitable and you've given your entire life over to me and what I want and I appreciate that so much. I'm going to set you free from oppression and treat you like a whole three-dimensional person now deserving of respect and worthy. Never going to happen. That's not how it works. So <laughs> we end up in these long-lasting cycles of basically coercive control, either with the people in our lives or with the broader culture. And that same disorganized attachment pattern plays itself out. Whether this is like, you know, maybe your family praises you when you're thin and they criticize you when you gain weight. That's disorganized attachment, right? Like you're getting that intermittent feedback of like reward and punishment through attachment needs. The, the need to feel safe and valued and, and loved by your family. Likewise, even if it's not directly the people in your life, you will get that feedback from society, meaning when you are thinner, people will give you more privileges in society. You will be treated nicer. You will be offered more opportunities. When you gain weight, you will be treated worse and denied opportunities and maybe have to face things like discrimination. And so we get that, we get that kind of back and forth in all of these ways. Like if you are conditioned as a woman – and you present yourself as more or less conventionally feminine 
everybody rewards you. You'll get lots of positive feedback if you shave your head and start dressing androgynously or do some other thing that breaks all the rules of what's supposed to be desirable and nice uh, for everybody else, um, you will be punished, as it were. Not necessarily in any specific way, but you will experience less of the privileges. You will experience more of what often feels very threatening, like suggestions of exclusion or actual exclusion. Um, suggestions of rejection or a withdrawal of things like positive attention and belonging. So basically, we end up in this disorganized attachment relationship with society and the people in our lives, who are also in this society, and it all functions with the same pattern of coercive control as a cult or an abusive relationship. Plus, a lot of us women have many experiences under our belt in which we learn that men are not safe. So we also have that kind of disorganized attachment relationship with men in general because we learn through patriarchy that men are our biggest threat, that like they're the most likely cause of our bodily harm and death, which is fair, but also that they're our savior and our protector and we need a man in order to be safe in the world. So we also end up with that kind of in our heads, like especially for straight women or people who date and sleep with men, there is also this sense that like men are scary and terrifying and I need to be really, really careful around them, but I also need a good man to protect me from all those bad, scary, dangerous men. So like that's disorganized right there. That's a push and pull. That is the dynamic of the person who offers me my attachment needs, care and comfort and support and safety, is the same people who I am terrified of because they hurt me or could hurt me. And even if it's not the same exact men, we do have a relationship with that idea of men, right? So like maybe the men in your life would never do anything scary or dangerous, but you are aware vaguely somewhere on some level that men are scary and dangerous sometimes. So again, that just reinforces this intermittent reward and punishment thing, this disorganized attachment thing. Um, so it basically teaches us to follow the rules. And in internalized oppression, what we end up doing is we adopt all those rules. We learn them, not usually explicitly, sometimes explicitly, like fat people should lose weight. That's like an explicit message of weight stigma and oppression against fat people in our society that will get stated and then internalized. But a lot of times it's more subtle. So a lot of times like the rules for what we actually have to do to be worthy or please people or please men or be desirable or whatever, they're kind of kind of vague and we all just pick up on them somewhere, right? Like I don't think people usually say to young girls, um, it, it, well, actually this totally does happen, but often it doesn't happen and we still internalize the same kind of stuff. Um, saying something like, if you don't wear makeup, no man will ever love you. Like that's not usually, it's not as explicit as that, but we get the message anyway through marketing, media, who is being celebrated and privileged in society and who is being oppressed and discriminated against, um, how people are portrayed. There's a lot of ways we learn this stuff. So we take all of this stuff that we've internalized, the rules and how it relates to our worthiness for getting our attachment needs met, our safety, our security, our survival, all that stuff. And then after that, nobody needs to oppress us anymore. 
which is the super convenient thing about internalized oppression. Nobody needs to oppress you once you have agreed with them and started oppressing yourself. And this is constantly what happens with my clients and in my coaching practice and in the people that I talk to. Despite the fact that they may have experiences of like real threats, either to their safety or their attachment needs being met, for example, like horrible um, breakups where the person said like, I'm leaving you because you're not thin enough or something, right? Like there, there are definitely examples that feel like proof. But essentially after those things happen and add up, nobody needs to say that anymore because now you're the person enforcing all these rules. You're the one policing yourself constantly about needing to be thinner, more attractive, more easygoing, more um, nurturing, sweet, kind, nice, uh, desirable, whatever it is, right? You're the one doing it at a certain point because you've learned through both the broader cultural context and the relationship dynamics that are coercive. Um, you've learned it, you've internalized it, and you have experiences that feel like they prove it. So now you are your own police. Nobody else has to police you anymore. At that point, what happens is men, at least in this you know, example with patriarchy, just get to sit back and relax while you make their life convenient and comfortable and sexy. They don't have to be like, hey, if you don't do these things, I'm not going to love you anymore. They, don't ha they never have to do it to benefit from patriarchy because you're doing it for them. And that's internalized oppression. It's the same thing with weight. If you are the one being like, I must lose weight, I must lose weight, I'm fat and gross, I have to change this. Nobody even, I mean, they still will because our society sucks in this way, but like nobody has to say it to you. You learned it. You're doing it. And therefore, you are now your worst enemy. You are now your oppressor. And your actual oppressor just gets to like chill and enjoy the benefits of your oppression, which sucks. And it makes me so mad. Like this is something I've been saying to my clients a lot is like, yo, if somebody wants to manipulate, coerce, control, exploit, oppress you, let's make them work a little harder. Like, this is bullshit. If someone wants you to stay small and sweet and docile and empty-headed and thin and hot and young, if that's, what, if that's what they want, let's make them work a little harder, you know? Like, let's not do that work for them. Be you and make them work harder. It benefits everybody and uh, benefits you because it becomes a vetting system. If you're, if you're refusing to police yourself, you'll see pretty quick which dudes are going to police you for you. And those are dudes you can get away from, hopefully. Because ultimately, by doing their job for them, we never have to reveal their character, right? Like they get to just chill and benefit from the patriarchy and they never have to come off like a bad guy. Because all the bad guy stuff that would actually be them coercively controlling, exploiting, using, manipulating, or abusing you, you're doing it to yourself. So when I work with clients in this situation, they feel very limited, restricted, afraid, anxious, shamed. There's all kinds of really, really unpleasant stuff that comes 
from this kind of internalized oppression. But they also feel like there's nothing they can do about it. Because if they were to change, if they were to speak up, if they were to, whatever, break the rules, um, they would be severely punished. And they have a good reason for believing that. And in some cases, they might even be right. But in a lot of cases, they're not right. In a lot of cases, they are doing the restricting. They are doing the policing on behalf of someone who either wouldn't bother work that hard to oppress you, maybe they like it or they benefit from it, but they're not about to step over a line and start actually, like, oppressing you because it wouldn't align with their own sense of self or character or values or whatever. Um, or maybe that's not what they want at all and they just don't even know you're doing it or they don't know how to help. So in these scenarios... I encourage my clients to basically become a rule breaker for all of the things that we've learned that give us value. Most of them focus around two things, looking attractive or desirable, which is to say like thin, young, conventionally attracting, attractive according to like Eurocentric beauty ideals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And being sexually available, um, boosting their ego, like all of the things that kind of go with being desirable. And then there's the other aspect, which is making them feel good, comfortable, happy, um, you know, not emasculated, make them feel like a big man, whatever. Like th these are the other things. And they're all kind of under the, the umbrella of desirability because like what is less attractive to a man who wants to exploit you than uh, you speaking up for yourself or setting boundaries or having needs <laughs> and expressing them or advocating for them. Um, so it's all kind of policed by this idea of what's attractive and desirable, what earns us value in their eyes, um, and what makes us worthy of getting our needs met by them, including just safety and survival. So we learn to do all of this stuff, including like, you know, having sex we don't want to have or when, that we're not ready for or in the mood for, um, laughing along at sexist jokes that we don't think are funny, not speaking up when someone makes us uncomfortable because we don't want to enter conflict or express anger or make somebody feel bad. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we end up doing, as well as policing our appearance and our bodies, of course, like trying to uphold a certain beauty ideal, wearing makeup, um, upholding a certain feminine standard or weight loss, you know, policing our body shape through food or exercise, that kind of stuff. Um, but then also there is the caretaking element of like never being a burden. That's a really big one. And we learn that it's unattractive for a woman to be needy, right? It's unattractive for a woman to be, um, to ask or advocate for what they want to need in the world. Why? Because that's inconvenient for other people and She's supposed to be valued by making other people's lives easier and better. So like it's all these things that we do. We follow all of these rules constantly. And therefore, we start to build up a lot of anxiety about not following the rules or breaking the rules. Because even if nothing specific, sometimes you can't even name. If, if I'm like, what do you think would happen if you went to work without makeup? Sometimes clients are like, oh, my boss would say I looked sick and insult me. Um, and other times they're like, I don't even know. Just would feel like dying and I'm like yeah that's exactly right right because our attachment need is a survival strategy therefore trying to follow the rules to to get your attachment needs in society 
it is about survival. Therefore, it will feel like you're going to die. That's how scary and dangerous it feels to our nervous systems to think about breaking the rules we've been given and internalized about what makes us worthy of getting these needs met. So with all of this said, what I do with clients is uh, I help them become rule breakers. Now, I should mention here that it is terrifying and that's okay. And if you're going to if you're going to try any of this, I need you to know it will feel like you're dying. It will. And that's okay. I never encourage anybody to take a step that they don't feel ready for. And I never would want anyone to go too fast because our nervous systems literally have to like integrate and metabolize our experiences in this space. So I always say baby steps with fear facing. If breaking a particular rule that society says you have to follow in order to be worthy or get your attachment needs met and therefore keep on living uh, terrifies you, you don't necessarily have to go do the big version of the thing, right? Like if going makeup free is going to send you into a panic attack. Don't do that. Start building slowly with baby steps. Like maybe, you know, if you're used to wearing a full face of makeup and, and a glam look, like going without the fake lashes or switching to a more natural color palette or like there's ways that you can start doing the fear facing to build over time a feeling of embodied safety in that space. And that is really, really important. So don't hear all of this and be like, Jesse thinks I need to go <laughs> face all my fears and break all the rules today because no. This is a slow process, but it is a powerful and transformative one. So what I help my clients do generally is we will start with a list of all the things they feel like they have to do and all of the things they feel like they can't do. And when it comes to appearance, this can be a long list in and of itself, right? Like I have to work out a certain amount of times per week. I have to um wear a certain kind of outfit for my body type I have to have to have to anything that you say to yourself I have to or I can't that points us towards a restriction and if you feel a lot of distress at the thought of breaking that rule um that's probably one worth exploring so at a certain point you start breaking down the rules that you've identified, which anything under the I can't or I have to container that makes you feel distressed upon imagining doing it differently. Um, those are your rules. You start breaking them down and practicing slowly and progressively and consistently over time breaking them. So yes, the beauty world, there is a lot we could talk about in that space. But also, this includes a lot of really major behavioral things. So for example, some of the biggest rules that we learn about how to be desirable and worthy in the eyes of men under patriarchy is like never advocate for ourselves. Never speak up or hold people accountable when they make us uncomfortable or we feel um, like an injustice has happened. Like don't call people out for being sexist or rude like you have to hold all that you have to tolerate all of that hold their shame for them don't make them feel ashamed that would be terrible right why because your job is supposed to be under this system of rules you have been coerced into thinking that um you are only worthy of like kindness respect and safety if you follow the rules that you've been given and those rules include making life easier for men so speaking up saying no uh, doing what you want, dressing how you want, showing up without, you know, trying to cater to the male gaze, um, expressing anger or dissatisfaction, asking for help even, 
advocating for what you want and need in the world. These are things that are, quote unquote, unattractive, right? They're undesirable because they break the rules you've been given for what keeps you safe in terms of getting your attachment needs met and sometimes just literally safe, physically safe. So um, some fear facing might be learning to advocate, speak up, hold people accountable when they make you uncomfortable or say things that are uncool. Handling conflict directly and clearly and honestly communicating your feelings, your needs, your boundaries, setting boundaries, um, holding boundaries, uh, only having sex when you want to have sex and you're 100% ready for it and like really definitely in, not just kind of like, sure. Um, not sugarcoating things. Like a lot of a lot of the time, my clients will say to me like, I just don't know how to tell him that I'm not interested in whatever. Or, I just don't know how to tell him about this boundary or this need I just don't know how to tell him and I'm like well what if we didn't sugarcoat what if we what if we just said I was called the truthiest truth I'm like it's true on some level that like you don't want to hurt his feelings and um let's say you're rejecting someone someone's hitting on you and you're like I just don't know how to say I don't know how to get out of the situation like if you're sugarcoating it's a really complex <laughs> gymnastics routine in your head to come up with what you want to say because it's like how do I present a boundary without hurting his ego and protecting you know his feelings and like preventing his anger and you're doing a lot of work on his behalf in that moment but underneath all of that stuff there's like a very true truth that probably just sounds like I'm not interested or I'm not attracted to him or I'd like him to leave me alone because I'm hanging out with my friend right like there's almost always like a very concise unsugarcoated truth underneath everything so learning to speak that truth directly without sugarcoating is scary for a lot of folks so these are things that we practice these are skills we build over time and as you face your fears over time in this progressive consistent way so it's not you don't just do this once and now you feel safe first time you're gonna feel like you're dying and then afterwards you're gonna freak out Probably. That's usually what happens. Um, but over time, you get comfortable with it, right? Because fundamentally, like most people might give you a little pushback, but you are much more safe than you realize to do these things because it is a fake, uh, it is a fake oppression. Like it is real. The system of oppression is real, obviously. And people face discrimination and violence and that's all very real. But most of what we limit ourselves from doing day to day it's like we feel like we're wearing handcuffs, like I can't do any of these things or else. Um, but the threat of the or else is a very vague threat. And when we actually do those things, like we show up without makeup, somebody might say, you look sick today. But ultimately, like nobody is likely to fire you or attack you, even though it might feel like that's the consequence that you're afraid of. And under certain circumstances, I will say for some folks – certain circumstances that could be true and obviously everybody has to determine what's safe for them to practice here but most of the time you're just going to get a stupid comment like why you look sick today and that's something that's actually pretty safe to handle pretty tolerable all things considered so the more you do this and the more you build up your resilience in the face of dumb comments like that and other things um, you really learn to feel freer and safer in your own body and this is the unlearning of internalized oppression this is the reclaiming of your agency, your power, your autonomy, your right to exist fully as a three-dimensional person without following all of these rules that your oppressor has given you. This is the healing work. Um, and I also wanted to say a lot of people are like, 
I could never hold a man accountable for what he said. So, for example, this is something that would be really scary. Let's say a guy's hitting on you and says something kind of objectifying that doesn't feel good, but you're afraid to hurt his feelings or upset him or whatever. And so you kind of laugh along and you're like, oh, yeah, totally. And you're like thinking to yourself, like, how do I get out of this situation? There are times that that is super valid strategy and you should totally not speak up because there are very real and present dangers in a scenario like that at times. But like the vast majority of the time, especially if you're in a social situation, the vast majority of the time, if you were to say the truthiest truth in that moment and go, wow, that was uncomfortable. I didn't like hearing that comment or "Hmm, that was sexist or I don't want you to speak to me that way or any number of the things that are like genuinely true underneath everything. If you didn't sugarcoat it and you just said it, you didn't smile or laugh along and make them feel comfortable and happy or like protect their ego. You just said the thing. Most of the time, he's going to do something, it's kind of, it's a little bit empowering to make men uncomfortable. Frankly, I'm a big fan. Um, but he might be surprised, right? Like surprised to learn that someone doesn't think he's hilarious and amazing and charming. Um, he might be annoyed. Might be kind of awkward or embarrassed, like backtracking a little bit or trying to get his footing again because he feels weird and isn't used to being held accountable. Might apologize. Might apologize half-assedly. Um, might do the thing that's like sort of minimizing or dismissing or being like, oh, lighten up, it was a joke, right? Like there's a lot of stuff that might happen in that moment that you can totally build the skill to handle and tolerate and feel safe doing over time with practice and fear facing um, that isn't actually that threatening. It might kind of suck. None of those things are great, right? None of them are like, oh, yeah, I got all my attachment needs met immediately. It was wonderful. But, like, those things are safe. And by moving through the world this way, in connection with your own agency, autonomy, power, freedom, et cetera, and, like, worthiness to be treated well, um, you basically don't have to be anxious anymore because you don't have to mind read what somebody thinks or feels or wants or needs. You can just be you. And you can feel like people are really seeing the real you, which is going to make all your relationships feel so much juicier and more meaningful and satisfying. Um, but it's also going to build your confidence and like a big part of reducing the anxiety as you move through the world by doing this, by becoming a disruptor of patriarchy, be becoming a rebel, you know, by becoming a rule breaker. Um, you basically gather all the skills and tolerance for those scenarios that previously you felt like you had to avoid at all costs because they felt so threatening. And most of the ways you have to avoid them is like, look hot, be nice, and good luck, right? Like you're constantly policing yourself to prevent someone saying something awful to you or being mean. But once you know that you you genuinely understand that you are deserving of being treated with respect and that you have the skill to hold other people accountable when they don't, then it, you don't have to work that hard. You don't have to do any of that stuff to prevent it. You could just be you. And if somebody says something rude, mean, unkind, whatever, um, again, most of the time you can just be like, that was rude. That was mean. That was unkind. I didn't like that. Please don't do that again. Whatever the version of the truth is. And that makes it so that you no longer have to play this constant anxious guessing game about what people like and think and feel about you. Like where everybody's mood is at. You just You don't have to do any of that when you trust yourself to handle those moments. And that is probably the biggest benefit of 
becoming a disruptor, becoming a rule breaker, and unlearning internalized depression. You get your peace of mind back. You get an embodied sense of safety and freedom as you move through the world. You know, you know that you are worthy of being treated with respect because you've advocated for it. And most of the time, it has turned out We'll say at least safely. Um, it, I don't want to say it has turned out well because who knows. But it also gives you a vetting system because the moment that you show up authentically and you break these rules and you challenge the, you know, internalized beliefs about what gives you value and makes you safe, someone will reveal their character and you just get to bounce from that relationship real quick, right? Like if your boss is a sexist asshole but he never has to say anything to you because you're willing to just like – hold all of that em embarrassing, shamey stuff that comes up when he talks because you never speak up. You don't feel like you're allowed to say anything. Um, he just gets to kind of do it and, and maintain a relation or sorry, a reputation as like a congenial, fun loving guy. Whereas if you hold him accountable and you're like, I don't want to hear comments like that again or comments like that are not acceptable or jokes like that are not funny. Now he has a choice, right? He can either backtrack and kind of be like, oh, yeah, okay, sorry. And maybe he'll change his behavior a bit. Mm, best case scenario. But kind of worst and best case scenario is that he reveals himself to be a violent sexist person, right? And, and actually go on the attack. Actually um, carry out whatever, whatever the, like, threatening thing would be. Even if it's just, like, withholding positive reinforcement, like maybe he treats you badly from then on. Maybe that impacts your career. If you, if that's unacceptable, then this is not a good fear-facing place to practice, right? Um, if you're in a position where that wouldn't be actually safe for you. But if it is, and you discover that, you might be saved years of working with an asshole who doesn't respect or value you and who makes you uncomfortable. You can perhaps either shift things around in your job situation or just treat him in a particular way that keeps you very boundaried and allows it so that you are not actually letting your sense of self-worth be impacted by someone who is just a sexist asshole. So it gives you immediate feedback. And the same is true with dating. This is why I'm always like telling my clients, don't put up your like most perfected pictures on dating apps because then you're going to live in fear of them finding out how you really look on the first date or when you first get naked or whatever. Put up like the most bland true pictures right like look like yourself and th that's an immediate vetting system if somebody is looking to exploit you for your hotness to objectify you and and is interested in you for those reasons um, that person's not really into you and you will discover that at some point whether that's years into a marriage <laughs> when you gain weight or get pregnant or something happens and they're like I don't want to do this anymore I liked it when you were thin and hot um you get that done before you even go on a date with someone, right? So there, there's a built-in vetting system. And again, to fully acknowledge, different people are going to be in different situations around what kind of um, experiences they can practice this in, or rather what kind of circumstances they can practice this, this in. If you are living in a marginalized body and you need to post your most beautified pictures in order to get a match, by all means do it this is not a moral or you know superiority inferiority thing this is not like it's better to be a disruptor everybody should do it no matter the consequences like this is exactly the opposite of that because I don't believe people should pull themselves up by them their bootstraps and overcome all obstacles I am very aware 
of the fact that these systems of oppression exist. And they are real. And they have very dangerous outcomes for certain people. However, for those of us with a decent amount, a certain amount of body privilege, the more of us who do this, who go about life this way, who become rule breakers and rebels, who make ourselves unattractive and undesirable to men under patriarchy who are interested in exploiting and oppressing us and objectifying us and using us and manipulating and controlling us, the better and safer we make society for everybody. And the better and safer we make our, our lives for ourselves by a landslide. So... Pick and choose. This is your choice. You have bodily autonomy. You can do whatever feels right for you. But if you are in a position of being in a marginalized body and feel like, okay, well, I literally can't break these rules and survive, um, I would at least hope for you that you're able to make the decisions you make from a place that is conscious and empowered and recognizes your own sense of worth and agency. For example, if you want to get plastic surgery in order to get ahead in the career market, and you make that decision knowing exactly what you're doing. You're like, this is worth however many thousands of dollars for me and the recovery and all of the other stuff that goes with it. It's worth it for me because my career is something I'm passionate about. And I know I live in this marginalized body. This will help me overcome some of those obstacles or whatever. Get down with your bad self. That's great. Do you. I am concerned about the people who are doing these things from a place of automatic reflex, obligation, fear, and a sense that their internalized oppression is actually the truth. A sense that they genuinely are less worthy of being treated well because they live in a marginalized body. There is a world of difference between taking any action, whether it is conforming to the rules or breaking the rules, when you are making it from a place that says, I am doing this for me because I have power and agency and autonomy and I get to do what I think is best for me. That's it. So that would be my hope. Um, none of this solves oppression, obviously. It, it will move us toward that if a lot of us started becoming rule breakers and disrupting patriarchy by basically allowing ourselves to be less desirable to men who would want to exploit and oppress us. Um, we do help set everybody free. But it is also true that by doing this work we sort of reveal the like make-believe nature of a lot of our sense of restriction. So like I said, it feels like we're wearing handcuffs, but as you start practicing this and becoming a rule breaker and becoming undesirable and like letting yourself um, break the rules of what you've learned, make you worthy of getting your attachment needs met, you will discover <laughs> that basically they were kind of pretend handcuffs. Not all of them necessarily, but like the vast majority of what we think of as a requirement, a restriction that we cannot break free from when we've been imposing it on ourselves, the consequences are not as bad or as dangerous as we thought. And that allows us to feel so much more empowered, so much more safe, so much more free, so much more confident, so much more worthy, all of the things that you want are on the other side of this experiment in a lot of ways. So um, I encourage everyone to become a rule breaker. And to become undesirable in the eyes of men under patriarchy. And I say men, but not all. I mean, whatever. Like, 
people are going to find you however they find you. But what I mean is breaking the rules of what makes you attractive to men who want to use you, exploit you, take advantage of you, coerce or control you, whatever, objectify you, dehumanize you, <laughs> all the things. Those are the men that a lot of times we are trying to follow the rules for. And uh, it's bullshit. Because they're never, those men are never going to grant us what we're actually looking for. They'll never meet our attachment needs in a secure way. They'll never make us feel whole and seen and respected and valued for who we are as three-dimensional people. Not ever. Plenty of other men will. Individual men, of course. But often we don't even make space for those men in our lives because we're like focused on these other men, right? So allowing yourself to become undesirable, unattractive to people who want to exploit you, oh, that's where the good stuff is. Literally, that is where you are able to vet people instantly. If you show up in a big body, in a bikini, you find out real quick which one of your friends is a fat phobic asshole, right? Like, real quick. And if you never do that because you don't want to find out or you don't want to deal with someone being an asshole to you, you're probably going to stay in friendship with a bunch of fatphobic assholes on accident. And it might come out eventually, or you might just kind of feel it. Neither is great. Um, but yeah, letting it be a vetting system. Letting your, your undesirability, your unattractiveness to people who want to control you and use you is an incredible vetting system. So it benefits you. benefits society. It leads to better relationships and, and relationships with better people, frankly. And if you're sitting there being like, okay, but if I do that, no men will ever be attracted to me or my partner will leave me or, you know, the consequences are too big. You could be right. I don't know your situation, but I will say that everybody I've ever worked with has believed the consequences would be greater, more dangerous, more threatening, more scary. Uh, well, maybe not more scary, but more dangerous than actually turned out to happen as they started practicing the fear-facing model as they started becoming a rule breaker, as they started becoming a disruptor to patriarchy actively as a choice. Because as you move through, you will realize that most dudes who benefit from patriarchy and from you suppressing and oppressing yourself, they're not willing to do all that work. I mean, we could call them lazy or just, I guess, be glad. But like either way, they like that you're willing to be small and let them take up all the space and have sex with them when they want. And, you know, like they benefit, right? Maybe they like it, but um, they're not about to step in and become an abuser out of nowhere. So if there is or, or become a complete asshole out of nowhere, maybe it's <laughs> another way of putting it. Um, like if you let yourself go and you're married, let yourself go, meaning, you know, like conventional ideals of beauty and body stuff, whatever you start presenting yourself differently, you cut your hair, stop wearing makeup, um, go through the intuitive eating journey and gain weight. Let's say all of these things, right? You do it because it's authentic to you. And your partner is like, hey, I just realized that the only reason I loved you was because you were thin and hot. And now that you're not anymore, I think I want to leave. You would be like, whoa, that sucks. But I also just dodged a real bullet. Thank God, this relationship is ending right now because I, I might have accidentally spent years with someone who is literally just interested in objectifying me. And I would have spent those years 
objectifying myself to try to make him happy in order to avoid finding this out. But actually, now I can make space in my life for someone who will treat me like a whole human, like I'm worthy and valuable and not just a piece of ass that makes their life convenient. So it would still be very painful. I don't want to downplay how horrible that could be. But I do want to name that that doesn't make it actually a bad thing. Becomes a vetting system. It's powerful shit. So thank you for listening to all of this. I am so excited to be launching a new program soon. It is called Project Ugly and it is basically all of this stuff teaching people how to do it through an eight-week course um, how to become a disruptor and a rule breaker so if you're interested in that please reach out on instagram at jesse neeland or um, on my contact page at jesse or if you're interested in coaching this is also definitely stuff i do with my coaching clients so you can apply for coaching at the uh, coaching page on my website and uh yeah this is something i'm so passionate about it's a huge topic but it's also like a wildly transformative process that I just feel like we don't talk about enough and, and a lot of people don't understand um, the ways in which these coercive control tactics actually show up in their day-to-day -day life. I hope by now having listened to this you understand um, and maybe you can tell everybody you know but um, thank you so much for listening. I always appreciate when you reach out especially like if you liked an episode or you have a question I can always make content to answer questions things like that so feel free to DM me on Instagram please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcast or are listening to this or if this is a YouTube video like and subscribe and leave me a comment because uh, that all helps this content gain traction and I want it to get into the hands of as many people as possible so that would be really helpful thank you and um, if you don't know already I have a book called Body Neutral a revolutionary guide to overcoming body image issues in which I talk about all this stuff and well not specifically the coercive control so much but the self-objectification and the patriarchy and the ways in which we learn and rule break and fear face um all that stuff is in my book, so if you haven't picked it up yet, you can buy it anywhere that you buy books or audiobooks. Um, so yeah, you can leave me a review for that as well if you've already read it. That would be so helpful. Thank you, and I appreciate you being here, and I will talk to you next week. 